take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 27. Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 30 will be the focus of our time together this morning. So our topic for today is adultery and our topic for next week is divorce. So pray for the pastor, right? These are not the kind of topics that I've look forward to preaching on with a great deal of anticipation in some sense on the other hand because they are sins because they are issues that are so commonplace in our culture i i do on some level look forward to addressing addressing them because i think a biblical worldview applied in these areas can be such a transformative thing so we're going to talk about the sin of adultery this morning, and I, I hope that I'll be effective in doing so, that the Lord would assist in preaching this passage in a way that lands heavily in your hearts. The whole point of what Jesus is doing in this passage is saying again, you're the man, playing the Nathan to our David. You're an adulterer, if not by physical act, by virtue of the condition of your heart you are a sinner in need of great grace and forgiveness that's that spiritual layer of Jesus's teaching here that we talked about in last week's message but there's there's a great deal of, of practical counsel that Jesus lays down for us in these three verses that I, I think can be remarkably helpful as well Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 27 if you found your way there let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word Jesus says, the Bible records, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body and your whole body to go into hell let's pray together father give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to discern bless the reading and the preaching of your word have your way in us work conviction god we pray in jesus name amen you may be seated Jesus lays down the command in verse 27 saying you have heard that it was said do not commit adultery But here as elsewhere in Matthew chapter 5 He intends a much broader application of that command than is likely assumed by his hearers We looked back at uh, we, we looked at verses 17 through 20 a few weeks back where Jesus sort of sets the the rhythm for the next several paragraphs Jesus there noting I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them in other words Jesus says I didn't come to cast aside to make void the moral comp uh, commands or imperatives of the Old Testament I came to fulfill them the same is true of its ceremonial expectation Jesus continues in verse 20 of that paragraph saying for I tell you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven Jesus says if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven you must be better than those assumed to be the best in your society you have to be better than the best in order to see the, to see the kingdom of heaven 
Now, a great part of the reason why the Pharisees and the scribes were regarded as the best was because of the shared understanding in that day of how to read the Old Testament. They would read verses like the one Jesus cites in verse 21, thou shalt not kill or murder, and make the assumption that so long as I don't draw the knife or wield the sword against an enemy, that I have honored that commandment. But Jesus says, if you've harbored anger and hostility in your heart toward another, you have come under the judgment and the weight of that very commandment. They assumed that verses like the one Jesus cites in this morning's passage, thou shalt not commit adultery, meant that so long as you abstain from committing the physical act of adultery for all of your married life, that you are safe that you were morally superior, that somehow you had earned the favor of God. But Jesus says in our passage that if you have so much as looked lustfully at another, you have committed the sin of adultery in your heart. Jesus begins again here in verse number 27 by laying down a command that would be widely agreed upon. There would be universal agreement in Jesus' day that the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery or do not commit adultery, would have been universally agreed upon. That cannot, unfortunately, be said in our culture, but the truthfulness of what Jesus states, the appropriateness, the moral value of what Jesus lays out in thou shalt not commit adultery is as true today as it ever was before. The commandment is that you shall not be unfaithful to, but shall be loyal to your husband or your wife. Hopefully, I don't need to tell you this morning, you've observed in the reading of God's word and by personal experience, that the sin of adultery, like its sister sin, divorce, in next week's passage, are among the most consequential of all sins. Sometimes Brandy and I talk about our families in jest. We say things like, our families put the fun in dysfunction. We really don't mean any disrespect in saying those kinds of things. Sometimes you just laugh to keep from crying. You know what I mean? But in, in, my, in my case, I can remember far enough back in the history of my family when things were right. Like, I, I'm, I'm among the oldest of the grandchildren, and I, I can remember before adultery and divorce came and things were right. I, I can remember when, when my family was a nuclear family and the aunts and uncles' families were nuclear families and the grandparents were nuclear families and when Christmas gatherings did not involve the sheriff's department. I can remember that. <laughs> now, I'm just saying to you, I want you to hear me this morning, that the sins of adultery and divorce are among the most consequential of all sins. In other words, the concentric circles of effect and impact are great, and they continue on often for many generations. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Husbands and wives, hear me carefully. Your spouse deserves your absolute devotion. Your spouse deserves your absolute devotion. That is your physical devotion. That speaks of sexual intimacy. For those of you uncomfortable, those of you Victorians discomforted by that kind of conversation, trust me, I am as well, but it's an essential conversation. 
Your spouse deserves your physical or sexual devotion. They deserve your emotional devotion. Men, you should not be investing yourself or attaching yourself emotionally to people of the opposite sex who are not your wife. Wives, you should not be investing yourself emotionally or attaching yourselves emotionally to people of the opposite sex who are not your husbands. Now, I'll just tell you ladies a dirty little secret on how sorry men are. Men aren't really out to have a bunch of girlfriends. They're just not without ulterior motives. And by observation, most women are the same. You are to be devoted, absolutely devoted to your spouse, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. In every sphere of life, you are to be devoted, an undying devotion to your husband or wife. Jesus sets forth the command very straightforwardly in verse number 27. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. But then... Jesus does what he does in every paragraph, and he broadens the application of that command. You scribes and Pharisees think you're safe because you've yet to commit the physical act of adultery. But Jesus is about to drop the proverbial hammer. And Jesus broadens the application of this verse, verse to encompass so many of the sins that are commonplace and even regarded as respectable in our society. I'm telling you, this, this country, this culture, Western civilization has a problem with sexual immorality. When we describe our generation in the biblical terminology of crooked and perverse, that is a precise description of the era in which we live. Now, we're really comfortable talking about the sexually immoral sins of someone who's far off. And we really get vexed and stirred up when we talk about LGBT issues because those issues somehow seem more distant. But I won't tell you, I, I want you to have a little insight here on why we have the LGBT issues we have in the 21st century. Because we gave ourselves over and lent respectability to divorce and adultery in the 20th century, and we are reaping the whirlwind of those decisions. It's time that we started taking a sober look in the mirror at who we have been now for decades as the church with regards to these sins. Jesus broadens the application of this command and in so doing sweeps wholesale, sweeps a culture under its judgment. In verse 28, Jesus says it's more than meets the eye. In fact, he says, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says that lust in your heart is, is a violation of one of the big ten, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That lust in your heart brings you under the judgment of God against the violation of the Ten Commandments. If you have so much as lusted in your heart, you have violated the command of God on your life. Now, I'm not operating under the assumption that I'm going to be in any of our three services today preaching to a lot of people who were involved in the physical act of adultery. 
usually the progression goes that by the time the adultery has been consummated there is such a callousness for the church for the word of god for the presence of the spirit that an individual will separate themselves from the body they just fall off the map you can't find them with the fbi but i'm convinced that in the three congregations that I'll preach to this morning, there will be perhaps dozens of men and women who are flirting with the idea of adultery, who have invested themselves emotionally in someone who is not their husband or wife, who are finding themselves attracted to or drawn to someone that is not their spouse. I, I, I know that adultery happens and so on, on some level, I get that the decision can be made to commit the physical act of adultery in the heat of the moment. Here's the thing that I don't get. How the wake-up call cannot come in the hundreds and even thousands of decisions that are made between the first introduction and when the physical act of adultery is actually committed. You know good and well that you see the sin coming from a mile away. You know when the conversation turns in an inappropriate direction. You know when a look lasts too long, when a conversation bears substance it ought not bear outside the context of marriage. Jesus says that violating the command of God against adultery is a bigger deal than the physical act of sex outside of marriage. To lust in your heart in the language of our day, to flirt with the idea of a relationship outside of the bonds of marriage is to violate the command of God for us that we should not commit adultery. Now I want you to note that here, as in every instance of God's issuing a command, his interest is for our good. He is not the wicked taskmaster who would remove from our life any possibility of true satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and peace and happiness. God is for us with our best interest in mind, knowing what is best for us, building fences around our sanity and our well-being with the kind of command issued in this passage, thou shalt not commit adultery. This, this verse should land like a bomb in the context of a culture so infatuated with pornography in every way. What, one, of, one of my favorite stories from church history, Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes. Most of you won't know who Jonathan Edwards was uh, unless you took English literature 30 or 40 years ago and you ran read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in your high school English lit course. But Edwards was fired from his church for calling out the names of a group of boys who were looking at an inappropriate magazine. This was in the days prior to the American Revolution in colonial America. I, I've thought back about that story and counseling experiences and talking with families. What those boys would have observed in that 18th century magazine, they were coming under the discipline of the church for possession of that book, you could see in most any catalog that comes in the mail every day to each and every one of your homes. There, there is an unhealthy obsession with all things sexually immoral that is wreaking havoc in our culture. I'll give you some examples of how it does. 
There was a time in my counseling ministry when I worried for couples that the most dangerous sin to their future marriage was the sin of premarital sex. And then after a few years of counseling, what I came to discover was that not only were people outside of marriage having, having sex, but the people inside of marriage were not having sex. This is the consequence of our perversion, the, the consequence of, of, of the growth and popularity and even respectability of pornographic imagery in our culture all the while diminishing our ability to be satisfied, to be fulfilled within the bonds of marriage. This is why you can't watch SportsCenter for one commercial break, men, without seeing some kind of medication that's supposed to alleviate your frustrations and difficulties, if you catch my drift. What you're being sold by the culture is a counterfeit that not only will not bring you joy and satisfaction, it will rob you of the ability to enjoy satisfaction and fulfillment within the context of marriage. Jesus says the sin of adultery begins not in the bedroom, but in the hallows of our heart. When we give ourselves over to lust, when we look longer than we ought look, when we flirt again with the idea of a relationship outside of marriage. Now, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus makes two of the most audacious statements in all of the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm going to meddle a little bit. Y'all ready? Jesus says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body go into hell. I'd like you to first note that Jesus says the consequence for adultery is hell. The penalty for the sin of adultery, as is the case with all sin, is hell. That's the punishment everlasting torment hell is the punishment but the gist of what jesus is saying here is 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 really radical and i think can be really helpful if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off throw it away it's better to enter into life with your body maimed than for your whole body to go into hell what is jesus communicating here it is and simple statement in essence jesus is saying that you should take radical measures to guard yourself against the temptation to sin in this way in fact i would argue that you ought to take radical measures to guard yourself against sin in any way but especially within within the context of sexual immorality you should take measures hear me again to guard yourself against sin when it comes to sexual immorality here's where I make all the young people angry with the pastor moms and dads if you are allowing your teenage children access to smart devices unrestrained access to smart devices you are behaving foolishly as a parent and failing to take the measures that Jesus would encourage to guard the innocence of their hearts against the debauchery and the immorality and the perversion that creeps and seeps and would have their heart in an instant be careful 
My children think that I'm an evil dictator because they don't have access to devices and social media accounts the way their friends do in many cases. And, and the example we always go back to, the example we go back to over and over and over again is Adam and Eve and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam nor Eve could have ever imagined the consequences of that dreadful decision. But once you've taken of the forbidden fruit, there is no going back. Sexual sin works the same way. Once they've witnessed the image, there's no erasing that from their memory. Once they've had the experience, there's no erasing that from their past experience. They don't even know the dangers that lie ahead. I can't tell you how many times we've had this conversation. I can't explain to you, son, how dangerous it is. You can't imagine the dangers that are out there. Unless or until you see them, you'll never be able to comprehend the full consequence of this kind of sin seeping into your heart. You as moms and dads know, and it is our responsibility to guard and protect them. The same is true for you as couples. If, if you have social media accounts and access and unbridled internet access that your spouse doesn't have direct access to, you are behaving foolishly as a husband and a wife. Now, now here's what's going to happen. We'll dismiss today, and I'll be in the lobby. And, and 19 people are going to say, Pastor, let me tell you, I got, I got some stuff going on at work, some privacy stuff. I don't care about any of that. Your, your job and your personal privacy is not nearly as important as the sanctity of your marriage. It's just, it's just not. In recent years, the Billy Graham rule, once celebrated, has fallen from favor, and it's now derided as sort of this antiquated thing. And I get that there's some applications of that that have been carried out in sort of a chauvinistic and even offensive kind of way and that's wrong-headed and shouldn't be done that's that's wrong too but the idea of guarding yourself against any temptation to sin in this manner is biblical it is wise and it ought to be put into practice more often in our lives as a church than it is at the present we've been married nearly 17 years February will be 17 years and if your name's not Brandy or Granny I've not been alone with you over the past 17 years, except for Pam, my old secretary in the old church. And in the early days, it was just us, and Pam and my mother are the same age, so we decided we'd make an exception there, right? It's just good practice to guard the trust of your spouse, to protect and watch out for the sanctity of your marriage. Guard your heart. And the very ones of you say, this is unnecessary. We're progressive people. We're advanced. We're beyond this. We've grown in the Lord. We've demonstrated grace in our life. We're walking with Jesus. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The very ones among us who will beat their chest about their great strength and their ability to operate outside of some reasonable practices will be the very ones that will fall to the sword of Satan. I'm telling you, this is a dangerous, dangerous sin. And for maybe dozens of you this morning, you have flirted with the idea of adultery. You've not gone there yet, but you've flirted with the idea of adultery. For some of you men, and based on the statistics, maybe some of you women, 
You're watching things, you're observing things privately under a cloak of darkness that are ungodly, that are unwholesome, that are sinful, that break the heart of God and would break the heart of your wife if she knew what what you were looking at. I'm telling you this morning is the morning to walk away from those sins and to devote yourself absolutely to your spouse. Your spouse deserves your absolute devotion. You keep playing with the idea of some relationship outside of marriage, and pretty, pretty soon it begins to change your perspective on the wife that you have, right? You know, the, the thing that always frustrates me about counseling in the context of adultery is that adultery gets to play by a different set of rules than marriage, right? And, and everything that's experienced within the framework of this adulterous relationship begins to be a point of comparison for the marriage. And adultery is like, the relationship over here is great because it's not real, right? In the adulterous relationship, there's no children. There are no bills. There's no bills there. That's always a factor, typically a factor. You don't really have to talk about anything. It's all driven by lust. There are no communication needs that exist within the adulterous relationship. And over here is the real world. And the real world from the sinful perspective will always lose out to the imaginary over here in the adulterous relationship. You're you're looking over there, and, and you think that the grass is greener. And what I'm telling you is that the grass on that side is bitter. It's bitter. And it's, and it's poison. And within, within minutes of giving yourself to that relationship, not only will you come to realize how bitter it is, but you'll have destroyed the real thing that God has graced you with in marriage. Sin has this incredible blinding effect that will not let you see its consequences. Only the Spirit of God can break through that. You begin to see things differently, all wrong, Your thoughts are are warped. Your imagination begins to run wild. You begin to see things outside of the framework. God would have us to see the world outside of the Christian worldview. Come away from your sin. There are grave consequences. Husband flirting with the idea of adultery. Two years from now, some other man will be tucking your babies in at night. You chew on that for a little while. Wives flirting with the idea of adultery. How do you like the idea of some other woman addressing the needs of your child? You see how insane it is? No no one signs up for adultery with those kinds of consequences on the table, but it gets in, it seeps, and it creeps, and it consumes, and it overwhelms. And in the end, in many instances, you'll be convinced by your sin that what is all wrong is better than what was all right. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery in his heart, and one ought to take extreme measures to guard himself or herself against such sin. I want you to note here that the tearing out of the eye and the cutting off of the hand are not offered as a final resolution to the problem. You can gouge out your eye and you can cut off your hand, but the adulterous, lustful heart remains however that is not to say that limiting the opportunity for adultery is not a smart or a wise thing there was lust before there was internet pornography and there'll be lust long after internet pornography i'm sure there's some newfangled 
expression of sexual perversion that is to come down the pipe in the years to come. Lust is not ultimately an issue of the eye or the hand. It is an issue of the heart. The underlying spiritual principle that Jesus is demonstrating in our passage is this. You are in your very hearts adulterers. You may not have committed the physical act of adultery, but you are an adulterer by virtue of your lusting, adulterous heart. Y'all tracking with me this morning? It landed a little heavier with murder, right? Because adultery has this air of respectability now in our culture. We call it an affair, and somehow it's not as bad. But you are in your heart violators of this strict command of God, thou shalt not commit adultery. It seems that every conversation I've found myself in, at least gospel conversation I've found myself in over the past few years related to LGBT issues always drifts in the direction of God being pleased with my behavior because I was born this way. I think it's it's wrong-headed for you as a believer in that conversation to be pulled into that argument. First of all, you you won't win Second of all, just concede the point. Just say, okay, let's say hypothetically that's the case. It makes no difference. Adultery is a sin. We were born adulterers. We are born with hearts inclined toward sin. We are hell-bound haters of God from birth. doesn't matter what your sin of choice is. You are a violator of God's command on your life, and the consequence of that violation is the judgment of hell. You and I, again, Jesus plays Nathan to our David. He takes the command and says, we all agree that adultery is bad, right? We all agree that murder is bad. Now here's the news. He turns the table and says, you're the murderer. You're the adulterer. We're all adulterers in our heart. We have an adulterous heart. Do you see how heavy this is? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? you see why your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? There's is an external righteousness, but God looks upon the heart. Some of you are trying to fake it until you make it. And on the outside, you've convinced a lot of people that you've got your act together. You're here on Sunday morning. Family looks great. Things are all the way they need to be. Respectable jobs and status and position. But inside, you're like Jesus describes the Pharisees. You are filled with dead men's bones. You got some things on the outside going, but inside, you know right now in this moment that you are lost and you are broken. You have given yourself over to sin. You are in the process of wrecking your life and the lives of those around you. You know it, you know it, you know it. Jesus says, apart from me, apart from Christ, your heart is bent on adultery. No amount of gouging out eyes or cutting off hands can fix your heart. Only, only God can do that. Only God can do that, right? What you, what you need is not an arm lopped off or an eye gouged out. You need a new heart. The Bible says that in our sin, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. What you need is a new, living, beating heart that thumps to the will of God, filled with the Spirit of God. That's what you need. 
It's what Jesus describes in John 3 when he says, you must be born again. You were born the first time with an adulterous heart, with a murderous heart. But by faith in Jesus, when we believe on him, and plead that he would forgive us of our sin, we're given a new birth, a new life, and a new heart not freed from all of the temptations and the trappings of adultery and the promiscuity of the culture around us, no, but freed unto righteousness so that there's a new ability to walk faithfully with God. Some of you are laboring in your own strength, trying to work through some of these things and get your act together so that God will love you. You could not be more wrong about the gospel. The gospel is not about getting our act together so that God will love us. The gospel is about realizing that we are broken, that we are depraved, and asking that God would change us, that God would make us lovable even in our unrighteousness. Would you come to him and trust and believe on him? I was thinking after the first service, preaching on adultery is pretty much a guarantee no one is responding in the invitation time, right? <laughs> Nobody's coming down for that invitation. But let's be straight. All, all, all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us, from birth have a bent toward adultery. Apart from Christ, we have adulterous hearts. Only Jesus can change that. In the same way that Jesus is speaking to two layers here, two levels of concern, I have two hopeful expectations for our time of invitation and commitment. One, one that's spiritually speaking. Married and unmarried folks, regardless of your stage or station in life, you would realize the weight of God's judgment against our sin and how much we need His grace for us. Now, some of you are like scribes and Pharisees, and you've laid yourself down in the ditch beside the adulterers, you know, and you've measured yourself against their standard, and you've assumed moral superiority because you've seen what they did, and you've said, hey, I'm not like them. I'm better than them. Or maybe, maybe you are an adulterer. You've committed a physical act of adultery, so you lay yourself down in the ditch beside someone who sinned more greatly than what you have. And you have evaluated yourself against them, and you've said, well, I'm better than someone else. Surely God will love me for this. And, and I just want you to know that, that that could not be further from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I hope that you will wrestle with the weight of God's judgment against our sin, that you would look to him for grace and for mercy. My, my spiritual hope and expectation is, is that, one, the people of God would rejoice in the great grace that God has shown us and that to those who don't know Jesus as the Lord of their life would realize that the bow of God's wrath is bent against them and that they would run to the cross of Christ for shelter. That's my spiritual hope for the invitation. And then practically, practically, I hope that a handful, a dozen, however many there might be within our congregation, who have been flirting with the idea of adultery, who have been viewing things that they ought not view, would confess those sins privately before God before Satan completely consumes, overwhelms, and steals the joy of their life.
That's my hope. Do join me in praying for that outcome. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, we do pray that you would do just those things we've just discussed, that you'd bring conviction over sin to the heart of the lost. God, I pray that godly sorrow would overwhelm the one outside of Jesus, that they would groan to find grace and mercy in Christ and in Christ alone. God, I pray for the couples here, maybe even the single person who's been involved in some manner of sexual immorality. God, I pray that you would grant conviction and power to overcome the sin that so easily entangles. We pray that your will would be done, that you would make us and mold us into the likeness and image of your son, Jesus. Help us, God, to be like Jesus. In Christ's name.